Hello and welcome to The Stack. Today we speak with the team behind one of Ukraine's most authoritative news sources. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack. 30 minutes of print industry analysis and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show, of course, with Chris Chermak, our news editor. He did two very important interviews for the stack today. First with Ilya Ponomarenko, Kiev's independent defense reporter, and Darina Shevchenko, CEO of Kiev Independent. Hello, Chris. You've been talking to a lot of journalists in Ukraine this week. So tell us about some of the experiences, some of the things you've been hearing as well. Well, Faye, it's been incredibly emotional, to be honest, because I haven't only been speaking to journalists on the ground this week since the invasion started, but I met many of these journalists when I was in Ukraine, in Kiev, a few weeks ago, uh, reporting on, you know, the start of of this crisis or the continuation, the point where it looked like there there may be an invasion and I visited, you know, some of their homes of these people that they invited me into. And so, yeah, to mention a few names, I mean, there are just so many journalists that are on the ground that have been helping us and our coverage here at Monocle uh, throughout this. We're obviously going to be hearing from uh, some of those on the ground on this show. But some others, just to mention that some of our listeners will have heard on other shows, Alia Chandra of Euromaidan Press, she started uh, her own publication in 2014 as a result of the Euromaidan protests in Ukraine. She's from Kiev, has relocated at the moment to Lviv, although she may have also moved from there, has been incredibly emotional in helping us understand what's happening there. Olga Tokariok is another one, a freelance reporter who just works via... Twitter uh, keeping everybody updated at this point she has over a quarter million followers uh, you know just just for coverage of, of what's happening there and is an incredibly passionate voice we've had on and then I would also mention Volodymyr Yermolenko he runs a podcast company also all of these in English by the way Ukraine World is his podcast it's a group of academics writers journalists based in Ukraine that were trying to get the message out. They have halted the podcast during this, but are continuing via whatever other means they can to keep people updated. So it's just been incredible to see these voices out of Ukraine, uh, the journalists, the media that are trying to get their message out, in addition, of course, to all the foreign journalists that, you know, the BBCs and the CNNs that are there as well. And let's talk very briefly before we hear the interviews about one of the most important news sources in Kiev at the moment, which is the Kiev Independent. Uh, tell us a bit more about kind of the paper and the and the website. And, and you spoke to some of the members of the team, which we're going to hear it in a bit. Yes, yeah, so the Kiev Independent is quite an incredible story because they essentially only started four months ago. And this was this was started by a group of journalists that had been fired by the Kiev Post, which was or is an English language publication, but whose owner was sort of cracking down on their independence, the independence of the editorial staff. They were all fired, about 30 of them, if I remember correctly, and they very quickly started their own publication called Kiev Independent, and it has become essentially the main source of independent news out of Ukraine uh, in this time. They run a live blog on their site, which is updated continuously and otherwise, of course, via Twitter, just via social media, they have been updating on everything that is happening there. 
through a very small group of reporters, as as you will hear uh, from their CEO and from one of those reporters, their defense reporter, Ilya Ponomarenko. And it's just been incredible to see a small team obviously struggling with the situation to maintain. They've moved. They had just gotten an office just before, just about a few weeks before the invasion began. They were quite hopeful at the beginning of the year of starting something. And if there is one silver lining that you'll hear, it's that they they have gotten incredible support internationally throughout all of this. And so we hope that they are able to continue through that to report whatever whatever might happen on the ground. Thank you very much, Chris. And now to the first interview that you've done for us today. This is Ilya Ponomarenko, Kiev's independent defense reporter. As a defense reporter, I also do coverage for wars. This is my fourth war that I'm seeing, actually, over the last five years, because I've been to, you know, Middle East, Africa, you know, Donbass. And uh, right now here in Kiev, it feels like, you know, I'm home and I'm at work at the same time, you know, in terms of, you know, the environments, because it basically Donbass came to Kiev within just a snap in all details, you know, the atmosphere, the routine, and this uh, heaviness of air around us, you know, it feels so much like Donbass, you know, Kiev right now is basically a ghost city. It's not completely dead, but, you know, the traffic went down 95% and uh, most of the people have fled and uh, almost nothing is working except for, you know, pharmacies and supermarkets uh, and essential, you know, businesses. And, you know, lots of defenses in in the streets, lots of, you know, popular militia fighters on checkpoints, checking the documents. So I decided to get back, you know, I made sure that my loved ones, my girlfriend and my mom, they are, they are safe. I put them to a safe place and I get back to Kiev to actually do my work because I didn't want to you know, stay aside because I love the city. And also this is my job, you know, as a world journalist uh, working for the uh, media outlet titled Kiev Independent. I think you are expected to be in Kiev when it's being attacked by Russian troops or something. <laughs> so... So I decided to stay, stay here and with my roommate, with my flatmate, to be, uh, he's, he's got a car. So we basically hired him as a, as a driver because, you know, transportation is very difficult right now in Kiev. Basically, you can't move if you don't have a car. So I'm trying to tell the world everything that I need to tell about these things, you know, what's, what's living like in Kiev right now. So every morning, you know, I do not have a lot of sleep, but Every morning I wake up uh, after having like two or three hours of sleep and I check my my smartphone in terms of, you know, news that I missed as I was sleeping because it's super quick and super intense. And I see certain things like uh, something happened to, you know, Russians took another village in Kherson Oblast or they um, fired a missile against Kharkiv or something happened just northwest of, of, of Kiev in Bucha, for instance, um, Oh, they saw a, a really large Russian convoy approaching the city. So every single moment that I wake up in the, in the morning is the moment of that I get shivers, and I'm I'm really afraid to have a look at uh, at my smartphone and I'll check the news because I'm really afraid of you know getting things out of control. You know. Listen, I just I actually wanted to ask you about about your reporting, if you could. I mean, you. You have, I have, I think it's over over seven hundred thousand Twitter followers at this point. 
I mean, what kind of responsibility do you feel with that? You did describe that you're you're doing both. You're a war reporter, but also just uh, you know surviving in Kiev. But what what kind of sense of responsibility does that give you? Oh, that's insane responsibility. You know, uh, you know, I got this huge base of followers over the last just several days. You know, basically, I became that popular on twitter just thanks to this invasion and, and nothing else uh, before the invasion you know i had something like fifteen thousand followers or something and uh, you know in ukraine it was considered like pretty okay you know for journalists in ukraine because we, twitter is not super popular here uh, it's more more about you know english language and audience so yeah you know uh, and I, I, I my you know twitter followers base just exploded uh, to this to these figures that that i see and right now as i see how many people you know get this you know as i see how many people join my audience it's literally millions of people seeing my tweets so i need to think really hard about what i tweet and you know what i tell because you know right right now i have absolutely no um you know, no right for any sorts of honest mistakes right here and right there. So I need to think twice about uh, the information that I that I report, for instance, about hostilities. So it's it is always um, a big temptation. Uh, as I check the Telegram chats, as I check as I check the rumors that are going on in uh, you know the journalist community in Kiev, lots of things could be you know re- reported and unverified, un- unchecked lots of you know sensationalist things like we have this thing uh, today saying that uh, these turkish drones by tbs so we had allegedly been given a new batch of bactars but obviously there was an explosion of joy about this but you know we do not have an official confirmation from air force we do not have any pictures we don't have any new contracts we did not see any uh, you know, a cargo arrivals in here in, in Kiev. So most probably it was, uh, this message was aired on Telegram, uh, you know, in the community just to cheer people up and, you know, to show that, you know, since Bayraktar are super successful in this, so it affects, you know, the media environment in a truthful way. But it's not really news because you can't confirm it. So you need to think not even twice, you need to think 10 times before you post something because, you know, people rely on your words and uh, you are a human being and you can be deceived as well. So it's it's a great responsibility. So I ended up deleting my tweets for a couple of times just because, you know, I realized that I, you know, bought this rush for, you know, sensational news for my um desire to bring something super positive and super cool and super emotional about this conflict because i'm being emotional about this conflict because i'm directly my life depends on, on the successful this of you know ukraine's defense effort so it's a huge 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 uh, responsibility just because you know millions of people you just ended up being like regular guy just a middle-sized uh, average journalist and because of this events, you end up in the world spotlight and you got millions of people listening to you and trusting you. So you can't let them down. So, yeah, it's a big stress for me. I wish I had no Twitter at all, to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I, I can completely understand that. 
Listen, I I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know you need to to get a nap yourself as well. Um, but I did maybe want to ask you just at the end. I know it is so difficult right now, but can you try and look forward a, a little bit? What do you try to think about in terms of what you would like to do going forward? What you would like the Kiev Independent, for that matter, to become, assuming that you would stay? What What do you imagine one to two months from now? Well, you know, obviously it was a popularity blast, not for me, but also for the other guys and the, you know, the key dependent itself. So we ended up being top, uh, you know, English language media outlet here in Ukraine, even though we have lots of competitors right now here. And so far we are doing fine. You know, guys are working just around the clock, you know, here in Ukraine and also our friends abroad. We have the contingency plan. If, if the worst is to happen, for instance, if we lose connection with the world and our friends abroad, uh, many of whom work for free and you know, voluntarily, they would keep, keep, the, um, keep the website up and keep it updated. So we are trying to use this, I'm not saying opportunity, but um, uh, to show the best of ourselves in this, probably the worst time of this nation. So it's it's a great test for absolutely everyone and uh, including journalists. So we are trying to show the best of us uh, for this. And yeah, we will all include lots of efforts about, uh, about you know, covering this conflict because what I see from this, you know, conflict from this war is that, you know, the media environment uh, surrounded it is so important and, um, it directly affects, you know, the uh, the way the hostilities, you know, the way the the conflicts develops, the you know the media environment, uh, and so far I see that you know the Ukrainian part of, of this conflict is winning the informational war, just absolutely winning this, in many ways because you know the Russian narratives is so lame, so brutal, and so unbelievable that we have truth on our side, and it's very easy uh, to to work as a journalist, because you are just, all you need to do here in Ukraine is just to be honest, as simple as that. And you have all the eyes of the world for this. And, you know, people see that you are being honest and they trust you about this. So I sincerely hope that you know, the Kiva dependent will survive this, that we will stand this test. So I do, do hope that we will stand this. We will... In, uh, invest a lot, a lot, a lot of our our time, our strength into this. But together with the whole nation, we will survive and we will transform into something really important. Something, you know, something that is equal to CNN or, uh, you know, Guardian Times, just because, you know, we had this critical moment of history on our hands. So, yeah, it's we are still a small team of foreigners, mostly foreigners and Ukrainians, very young and very passionate and um, working for the idea where, I, where, you know, we are dreamers. So I think we will survive this to this and we will end up being stronger as never before, because, you know, we are freaking out about, you know, the number of our Twitter followers. We have more than one million right now. And. It's literally last week we had something like 15,000, even more, maybe even less, maybe even 10,000 followers. A week after we have a million and a half. It's just unbelievable. So, yeah, we're trying to show the best, the best side of us as journalists here. 
and continue our reports, let's hear from Darina Shevchenko, CEO of Kiev Independent. So, and with all the attention, I think we, you know, a lot of people saw us as the main independent source of English language information about what's going on in Ukraine. And I think in the last six days, we've got amazing results. Yeah, so now on GoFundMe, we have $779,889 raised. That's incredible. And Oh, it's it's not dollars, sorry, it's it's, uh, British pounds, actually. You know, raising people are still donating and uh, people are messaging us about how they are grateful for what we are doing and uh, how the information, reliable information is very important right now. And uh, I think that's motivating everybody on the team. Yeah, it's incredible in terms of the response. I mean, you... You've since, as as you say, you've very much become the voice of of Ukraine for the the outside world and in, in the English language media. What does that responsibility feel like? Well, you know, like I'm not a journalist and the reporter, so I'm I'm a manager. I'm a CEO of the Kiev Independent, and uh, but this these last six days, I mean, it's not like I have a lot of managerial work, really, you know. I mean, there is the main work lies in the shoulders of, of our chief editor, who is like coordinating the team and stuff. Um, she left Kiev, but she's in Ukraine. And uh, so we have a couple of journalists in Kiev, a couple of journalists outside of Kiev, but still in Ukraine, and, and a couple of foreigners who are also our staffers uh, like outside of Ukraine helping us. We also have a bunch of volunteers helping us to... Um, but I was like, so in these days, me personally, it was hard for me to like, do anything really except for read news so I, I decided i i could be helpful <laughs> and i started i i was for a couple of days i was on news duty uh helping the editorial team so how the being the voice of ukraine feels like well i yesterday i think when um your commission president quoted our editorial uh, in the european parliament it was probably the, like the the biggest moment where we kind of realized that we are the main voice of Ukraine now in the world. And uh, I mean, it's, it's a huge responsibility. I know that, you know, we try to be very careful about what we post. We, uh, you know, we, we've got one and a half million subscribers on Twitter and the whole world is basically reading us. We got, you know, one and a half million daily clicks on the website. Yeah, that's a big responsibility. We understand that. Absolutely. And I mean, I I know it is so difficult given the situation that you're you're currently in to think about the future. But what with with all of the support as well that you have received, what what do you think about in terms of what to do next? What what to do in the next one to two months? Do would you think about launching other products? I mean, where does your mind go in that sense about how to how to keep this going? I mean, it's uh, frankly very hard to make long-term plans right now. I'm sitting in, in the apartment and I hear, you know, explosions all the time. And it's like, uh, I kind of try to focus on what's going on right now. And I can't tell you that without consulting with the team. It's not like it's my decision. None of us have time to like think strategy right now. So... I am yeah. sure we'll find a way to invest this money to either sustain the Kiev independent for years to come with this support, like maybe create an endowment or something. 
that will, uh, you know, keep us going and make us truly independent and we won't have to rely on the source of funding that are not, you know, stable or that are compromised or something. Maybe we'll launch other products and that's, you know, probably both will happen. For now, (laughs) it's hard to say. It's like we try to keep the team together. The team is scattered throughout Ukraine and, and the world and we just rented an office just like a month ago and we finally got this office and, and we were so happy about it and now we have to i don't know I, we don't know what we what we're gonna do in a month or two let's see yeah yeah no that's that's of course very understandable I guess just to ask in terms of uh, hopes uh, for the future, I mean, one thing I would just ask in terms of how to get your message out, would you consider actually launching a, a print version of uh, of the Kiev Independence, even even for expats within Ukraine or, or anything like that? Not right now, but uh, maybe. I mean, we were thinking about it. We weren't thinking really about launching a weekly newspaper. We were more like, thinking about launching um like a monthly magazine uh something that people could hold on to and be somehow like a token you know like a symbol of kiev that kiev post was but um we didn't get to that before the war and and as i said it's very hard for me to make strategic plans right now and this is the decision that is going to involve a lot of strategic planning and and you know business planning too yeah, of course. Maybe then just just as one final question, but in terms of the immediate uh, and and how it feels over there, what are you doing at this moment in terms of, I, I know that, as you say, Olga, uh, the editor-in-chief, is, is running sort of the, the daily operations, but what are you trying to do in terms of contingency planning, anything to, to, to keep this going over the next days, weeks? I mean, we, we were looking, so I have a team, a sport team at Genomics who, and, you know, my partner, Jakub Rosinski, who is the CFO of the Kiev Independent, he is uh, outside of Ukraine and he is trying to do a lot about that. If you want to talk to him, you can, you know, I highly recommend that too. So they, from what I know, they're trying to secure a couple of spaces in different, you know, European capitals in case, you know, we want we all want to relocate and want to gather a team in one place. That's one thing. I mean, we are kind of fundraising a lot to make sure that, you know, if we don't have access to our Ukrainian bank accounts, that we have access to the Patreon money and uh, GoFundMe support and and stuff. Uh, We're talking to a lot of international partners about like how, you know, we can get help, uh, financial support or other help. But also now a lot of focus is on how to get like bulletproof vests and helmets to to Kiev to help us because we we didn't have any of that because we were like four months old and we were trying to get some right before the war but every year like it was already impossible to get any in Ukraine so we didn't get to and now my colleagues are trying to get us some from abroad so they're trying to figure out the logistics and of, of how to do that. So that's that's basically the focus right now. Uh, it's it's kind of too late for a contingency plan, you know. The the thing has already happened, so we are just now to 
have to survive through it and then make sure that we uh, gather somewhere yeah. and keep working. Next up on the stack, we head to Italy to drop in on the first edition of Testo, a new trade fair dedicated to the printed world. Held in Florence last week, February the 25th and 27th, and organized by PT Imagine, the same group behind the successful PT Uomo men's fashion shows, Testo brought together 70 publishing houses from across Italy, ranging from big established players to smaller independents, to celebrate the world of books and magazines, graphic design as well, as to offer the chance to hear from authors and editors and purchase titles. Monaco's Milan correspondent Ivan Carvalho journeyed to the Tuscan capital to attend Testo's inaugural event and brought back this report. Florence is the home of Dante, the poet who brought the Italian language to life in print. At Testo, organizers were eager to follow in his footsteps with a new annual event designed to stimulate readers and celebrate all the facets of publishing, from translation to illustration. There were workshops and interviews with Italian and foreign authors, events with editors, all done in an exhibition setting that looked to upend the traditional book fair format. The idea for Testo came from talks between Petit Imagine and the owner of independent bookstore Todomodo in Florence, Madalena Fossombroni. Testo is a new format. We believe that uh, book world could be, could be a community that works together and uh, we create a workshop, talks, and uh, a new um, experience uh, of the fair just to tell the people how is uh, important uh, the people working on a book. So, not just the authors. Signage for each stand at Testo is uniform and minimal, luring the public in to get a better look and browse. Importantly, each publisher was allocated the same amount of booth space in an egalitarian layout. There are shelves all around the walls. All the publishers are connected, so all the publishers have the same space. So it's a very democratic way to talk about books. So the big chain has the same pace of a little independent publisher. So it's a strange way to work in a fair that shows you how is the biodiversity and bibliodiversity of uh, editorial system. Beyond books, there were events focusing on the recent crop of cultural magazines and new supplements emerging on the Italian newsstand. Christian Rocca is editor-in-chief of L'Inchiesta, an online news site with a growing stable of print offerings. L'Inchiesta magazine, in collaboration with the New York Times, is uh, completely different from uh, what we do every day on our, on our site. It's a, a glossy magazine in some ways uh, with uh, a lot of analysis, news analysis, uh, commentaries and uh, in-depth uh, articles. In the magazine we published, we ran uh, a very long-form uh, articles with uh, you know, in-depth narratives because we believe that uh, you have to divide. On, online you need, uh, you know, uh, just the news 
and if you buy uh, a print magazine you need uh, you know time to uh, think about it uh, and you have to uh, you need time to read uh, so it's it's like the, the experience is uh, very similar to reading a book in some ways so I think that this is the the, the right direction to publish uh, good magazines besides its news periodical the inquiesta prints a broadsheet and a literary journal Kappa offering original short stories in attendance at a talk with Rocca that showed print staying power was Ipa Borea which publishes Northern European fiction in Italian, but also an increasingly popular cultural travel guide called The Passenger. Cristina Giurosa of Iberborea. The Passenger is a book magazine and a very special travel guide, very different from what you find in bookshop in the travel section. Why is it so different? Because it doesn't have any touristic information in it and it's trying to speak uh, about contemporaneity of a place through long form, long reads, uh, literary journalism and uh, literary essays. They are all written by the most prominent voices of uh, local writers but also international writers and uh, trying to reply to unusual questions. For instance, we uh, we have wondered why Iceland, what Icelandic thinks about the flood of tourism they have nowadays. We have uh, talked about why Japanese uh, love so much uh, uh, Afro-American music. We have, in the Portugal issue we have spoken about surf culture instead of speaking about uh, soccer culture. So the aim is uh, the present of a country and uh, it is a book dressed up as a magazine that you will have in your hands while traveling and help you to understand better what uh, this country is and what uh, its inhabitants uh, thinks and do. Among prominent small publishers on hand at Testo was Quod Libet from the Marque region, which enjoyed the freedom offered by the fair's innovative layout. Luca Giangrandi, sales manager at Quote Libet. What I like about this fair is that they have an iconic layout and design, uh, which is different uh, from the other fairs, because in the other fairs you just bring your catalog and uh, the, you have to, to pick your own layout. And here you, are, you feel like you, you can collaborate with the organization of the fair. What uh, people uh, find interesting in our catalogue today is like uh, our um, philosophy books and essays in general, because we publish uh, Giorgio Agamben, which is one of the most uh, famous uh, philosopher, Italian philosopher in the world, and uh, some other great thinkers like Carlo Ginzburg. And uh, they like our uh, short stories, books and novels and also our uh, architecture catalogue, which is quite unique in Italy because we have like, uh, very important essays of great architects. Younger readers were not forgotten at Testo. There were clever coloring books, titles with pop-up pages, as well as books with witty observations and cartoons that even mature audiences were drawn to. Pietro Coraini is owner of family-run Corina Edizione in Mantua. We started publishing children's book uh, with Bruno Munari. It's a kind of uh, different kind of uh, uh, children's book because our children's book made by artists, not by author or by illustrators. We have a lot of illustration, we have a lot of texts, but uh, the main focus is that we work with artists that take care of the book itself. So the object, the paper, how the book is binded, uh, is printed, uh, what the message of the book is. Uh, everything is really simple. I think uh, it's also interesting that our book uh, 
barely have a lesson to learn, but they are uh, like many of the artists working today, they just want to be uh, entertaining and having something fun and uh, doesn't have to give you an idea of what is right or what is wrong. So it's kind of uh, raw materials now that uh, kids, teachers, adults uh, can read uh, as they want. And I think it's clear also because we sell a lot of uh, children's books also to adults. Uh, many parents buy two copies of the book, one for the kids and one for themselves. And people were buying at Tesso. Over 8,000 visitors over three days reinforced the organizer's belief that the printed word in all its wonderful variations, is still very much relevant. For Monocle, in Florence, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Thank you very much, Ivan. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fp at monocle.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. Meanwhile, you can listen and subscribe on monaco.com, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Music